0: So good morning. (laughs) Um, It made my weekend, made me really happy. And I feel like this whole week I've kind of been waking up a little bit happier. I don't know if it's just like the sunshine and stuff, Um, but I've been waking up with songs in my head, but I had a really weird one in my head on Tuesday. So I woke up with this old Sunday school song going in my head, which is not normal for me, right? Like usually I've got like the Spice (laughs) Girls stuck in my head or something. Um. But it was a song that I went to try and find online. I was Googling it and I couldn't find it. So I'm like, oh, maybe it's something like my Sunday school teacher made up or something. Something like Diane or Susan would make up a cool song for the kids. But the song was five loaves of bread and two little fishes, five loaves of bread and two little fishes and on. And so that like got stuck in my head like an earworm just kind of going over and over and over. And so I found myself thinking about that story uh, for a few days this week. And I thought, well, I'm just going to lean into this because it's kind of sticking there. And the more I thought about it, I was like, it's really a weird story. Isn't it? And I think it's a really challenging story even to preach because it's really challenging for our like postmodern sensibilities. So I'm going to start with the story just to remind us of some of the details. And then I'll share some thoughts on it here. So I'll put the, uh, oh, good. Actually, I'm glad to hear that it was probably Dave saying that song growing up in the assemblies of God. Okay. So it wasn't just, wasn't just mine. Here's the first part of where it's found in Matthew. Put The second part in here real quick as well. So you can read along with me. Matthew chapter 14. When Jesus heard about what happened to John, he left in a boat and he went alone to a place where no one lived. But the people heard that Jesus had left, so they left their towns and they followed him. And they went by land to the same place he went. And when Jesus got out of the boat, he saw a large crowd of people and he felt sorry for them. And he healed the ones who were sick. Late that afternoon, the followers came to Jesus and said, no one lives in this place. It's already late. Send the people away so they can go to the towns and they can buy some food for themselves. And Jesus said, the people don't need to go away. Just give them some food to eat. And the followers answered, but we only have five loaves of bread and two fish. And Jesus said, bring the bread and the fish to me. And then he told the people to sit down on the grass. And he took the five loaves of bread and the two fish. And he looked into the sky and he thanked God for the food. And then he broke the bread into pieces, which he gave to the followers. And they gave the food to the people. And everyone ate until they were full. When they finished eating, the followers filled 12 baskets with the pieces of food that were not eaten, and there were about 5,000 men there who ate, and there were also women and children who ate. So first, I just want to note that I don't love how the women and the children are just like an afterthought, you know, also they were there. So I'll just object to that and move on from it. But moving past that, I think this story seems like it was actually a really important one for the earliest believers. Because it's the only miracle story that's found in all four of the Gospels. And in addition to that, there's actually two other stories that appear in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark that talk about Jesus feeding 4,000 people. So I used to get really confused because it was like, okay, so were there 4,000 men or were there 5,000? And is it the same story? And if it is, why is it recorded in two of the books more than one time? Like that seems a little bit odd and i think what's helpful here is to understand that the gospels were originally stories that were like circulating orally among the early jesus followers right and so these stories these ones that were like told a lot and were told over and over were especially important to the to the believers were eventually written down right they were compiled and put together and actually all told not that much time actually lapsed between the time that these stories were circulating and the time that they were written down it was maybe like 35, 40 years after Jesus's death, that the Gospel of Mark was composed. And so, Mark was the earliest gospel. It was probably the main source for Matthew and for Luke. So, Mark was the earliest, along with something else theoretical, um, another source that's called Q, which I hate to even say now because <laughs> it seems like QAnon or something weird, but it's not that. And for those of you who are more like theology wonks, uh, I've always, I I think I prefer the theory that Q was probably like an oral source that was compiled and kind of thought of sort of an authoritative group of stories, but there are some people who believe it was written or a combination of both. So anyway, you had Mark and you had Q and those were the main sources. And then Matthew and Luke also used that. And John was written down um, a few decades after that. There are other non-biblical stories, things that we've read like the Iliad and the Odyssey Right. Those were also passed down orally, sometimes for hundreds of years before they were written down in oral cultures. Oftentimes details can actually be passed down surprisingly um, accurately. Right. And there can be helpful historical information in those. But I say that just to say that even if the details are a little bit messy in this story, 4,000 people, 5,000 people um, with some variations, it does seem like the story of Jesus feeding a large crowd I think is most likely grounded in some kind of shared experience that happened. Right? It's like something big happened that people talked about for years with some wonder. Now, I tend to make some space for miracles in my faith journey. Right? So I give that part of the story some gravity just personally, right? That idea that something remarkable Um, Something that seems a little bit impossible may have happened with a little bit of food that shouldn't have gone as far as it did. But even if you don't give a lot of credence to the miracle stories, which I think is fair, there's reasons to believe that the story was important for the believers um, beyond just that miraculous nature of it. So I just want to offer three of those this morning. And So the first one is this, the story helps establish Jesus as an important healer and prophet. Right, so Jesus multiplying food, it would have reminded people of other stories in their tradition. You had stories about like Elijah and Elisha who are prophets from the Hebrew Bible, and they also multiplied food so that it like stretched further than would have been expected. So it was a little bit like, wow, you know, the prophet Elisha, he turned 20 loaves of bread into enough to feed 100 people with some leftover. That's pretty cool. But Jesus, he turned five loaves of bread into enough to feed 5,000 with some leftover. Right? So that story of Elisha is found in 2 Kings 4. And so Elisha and Elijah were these great prophets who called out rulers who were like unjust and exploited people. And so relating them to Jesus fits Jesus into a category that people already had. Right? This helped them understand like who he was in relation to them. He was a prophet. And he wasn't just any prophet. He was perhaps the greatest of the prophets. Uh, The second thing I think is the most sort of um, relatable and universal element of the story that speaks pretty plainly to us. And it can just tell us that sometimes our meager resources are enough. Sometimes our meager resources are enough. I know we've talked a lot about Brene Brown in our congregation, and she likes to say that the opposite of scarcity isn't abundance. The opposite of scarcity is enough. So I was was also at the park this week taking walks, and when Steve said that he got caught in that sort of sleet storm, I think I might have got caught in that same storm that came through Ypsilanti, and it was kind of raining and a little sleet. And I was walking down in Riverside Park in Ypsilanti. And so I made a big run for the big gazebo that's right down there on the water. And I was the only one there as it was raining and I was hoping it would just pass over. But as I was sitting on the picnic bench that was in there, I was watching there was about 15 or 20 bank swallows, these little tiny birds that just started swarming right over the surface of the river. And I saw them just kind of swooping And eating. So, of course, I get on my phone and I'm just like, what are these bank swallows doing? And apparently they just eat insects, usually over water. Like that's the main place that they they get their sustenance. And so, as the rain was coming down, I think there were just some insects hovering over the water and they were kind of on this little feeding frenzy. And that reminded me of that place in the Sermon on the Mount. I'll put it into the chat. It just... Reminded me of that part where Jesus says, therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you'll eat, what you're, what you're going to drink or about your body, what you'll wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? Right. So I was just watching these birds and thinking about that, like, yeah, God cares so much for these birds who, like, they can't store up food. I mean, when the beginning of the pandemic came, you know, I had some beans and some rice. They can't do that, and yet God still takes care of them, and it had me thinking that, you know, I've been hearing from several people, and I think many of us are still experiencing parts of our lives where there is just, like, there's just still no good choices. And that can make us feel like we're not enough or like we're not doing enough. We can't possibly be a good enough parent. We don't have enough. And I know I've said many times, but I feel so bad for those of you parents with kids at home during the pandemic because it feels like I hear that the Facebook groups are just like a slaughterhouse that you get criticized if you want your kids to go to school and be in more activities for their mental health and you get criticized if you want your kids to stay home for their physical health. And it's like you get criticized no matter what you do, because there are no good choices, right? There's, there's no right answer. There's only choices that are the best ones that you know how to make based on your experience and your kids. And so you can be made to feel like no matter what you do, it's just not good enough. And people are projecting their own sense of not enough onto others. And some of us can be feeling like that at work. Like maybe you've had to take a pay cut or maybe you're operating with too few employees or maybe with like restrictions on visiting extended family. You can might even feel like you're not being enough for yourself, right? Like you're failing at caring for your own needs and you're kind of aware of it. And so I was thinking about Jesus in this story. And I was thinking about how much he was at the end of his rope. Because in all four of the gospels where this story is recorded, this story immediately follows the story of the beheading of John the Baptist. And so John was Jesus's cousin. He was the one who kind of just got him from the get-go, right? He baptized him. He was one of the first to really recognize what it was that Jesus was trying to say and to do with his life. And I think we all have people in our lives who we just like, we just love them because we know they just get us on some fundamental level. Right. And so Jesus's cousin was like that for him. And he was arrested and he was put to death by the state. And it was done in a really horrific way. Right. In a way that like I remember when beheadings were happening, you know, in our like ISIS and different things um, in our world and just like how jarring that was. And if you can imagine that being somebody who you knew really closely and it was like, man, Jesus had just learned about this. And he was grieving really hard, right? the beginning of the story, let me put it in the thing. He says, when Jesus heard what happened to John, right, that kind of glosses over it, what happened, but he was horrified. He left in a boat and he went alone to a place where nobody lived, right? It was like he needed to get away. Some of us, like if you've got a house full of kids, probably some of you are feeling that, that a little bit. It's maybe not quite as bad here as John, but like He just needed to get away and be alone and yet crowds of people heard where he was going and they followed him and he took compassion on them and he engaged with them but i can only imagine jesus's weariness and his desperation for some alone time and then he's hungry and he's got all of these people who are counting on him and so he's at the end of his rope when the disciples are like look there's no food and we're in the middle of nowhere but he does take the very few resources they have, right? He finds some scraps, five loaves, two fishes, and he gives thanks and it's enough. And so I wonder if even when we're feeling kind of strung out and maybe like we don't have a whole lot, that we might find a few crumbs and that might be enough. And that we can just identify a few resources that even if they seem like they're meager, that we can give thanks for them and they'll actually maybe surprise us by being Just enough to help us make it through. And that leads me to the third thought, which is just the importance of thankfulness and reciprocity. The way Jesus is described as giving thanks to God and breaking the bread, right? That should remind us of our weekly ritual of taking communion. I'll put that in the chat, this part. He, He took the five loaves of bread and the two fish and he looked into the sky and he thanked God. And then he broke the bread into pieces and then he gave them to the followers and they gave them to the people. Now, I don't know about you, um, but I grew up with a little bit more of like like a rigid way of saying a prayer of thanks before every meal. And when I did some deconstruction of my faith when I was in my 20s, I stopped praying before meals because it kind of felt to me like Okay, so why does God constantly need to hear me say thank you? Like, God knows I'm thankful. I don't need, like, the burden of this. And that's fine. I don't feel bad about that. But recently, I've started to reframe this a little bit in my mind. Saying thanks to God for food can help me develop this habit of gratitude. And we know that when people have a habit of gratitude, they tend to be happier. And then also, the books on indigenous spirituality, that I've been reading and that reading some of those with our Tuesday book group have been challenging me to think about prayers of thanks as helping me to develop a relationship of reciprocity with God and the creation right so when I say that I mean like we can treat food and other resources like they're commodities right we go to the store we buy them we use them or we can relate to them as like gifts from the earth and by extension gifts from the creator of the earth and If they're gifts from an earth and the creator, then we have a responsibility to nurture those relationships in return. And so as I understand it, in many indigenous cultures, when you use a resource, you reciprocate that with either a prayer, a song, a ritual, uh, maybe something like an offering. So traditionally, tobacco would be offered. And that's a way of acknowledging to the earth that we're not just takers from it. Right now, it would be cultural um appropriation for those of us who are not indigenous to start just like leaving tobacco gifts right but we do have prayers and songs in our tradition that we can reframe and we can think of as like giving back and it was reminding me of when i lived in china they have, in chinese there's a concept called guanxi and it's um it means relationship loosely and the way it works is like if someone gives you a gift You you tend to give something in return, but you don't do it because you owe them, but you do it because you care about nurturing the relationship and the mutuality in that relationship. Does that make sense? I give something back to you, not because I owe you one, which is a very, I think, American way of thinking about it, but because I'm nurturing this mutual relationship of trust and care. And so I think when Jesus gave thanks for the bread and the fish, just like when we give thanks for the bread and the juice or the wine during communion every week that we're offering this thanksgiving of like to the earth and to the creator of the earth for giving us these gifts, right? This living creator and a living creation, and that we have a responsibility to nurture the mutuality in those relationships. And so we thank them. And then like the disciples handing out food to the crowd, we hand out like what little that we have, And we hand those out as blessings to those around us to increase that mutuality and that sense of good relationship. All right. So let's take a little time of meditation here. We often have a couple of minutes of either silence or guided meditation. And this morning, I just wanted to, like, have us get a little bit comfortable if you would like. Feel free to just kind of relax your neck and shoulders. Let's take a couple of deep breaths at your own pace. Often in through the nose and out through the mouth is a helpful way to relax the body. And as you're relaxing here and breathing deeply, slowly, I invite you to just picture in front of you in your mind's eye, identify some resources that you have, maybe like three to five resources. Maybe it's a supportive partner or friend. Maybe it's a good boss. Maybe it's extended family. Maybe it's a park that nurtures you. Think of three to five and actually visualize them in your mind. And let's take about a minute to a minute and a half to just say thank you to those things, to the creation, and to the creator of creation for those things. Let's do that now. I'll let you know when the time has moved on. Divine Spirit, we give you thanks for all of these resources that we have, some meager, some not so meager. We recognize these gifts come from the creator. We recognize the good gifts of the creation, and we ask that you would help us to see ourselves in relationship more and more with the creation and the creator in a relationship of mutually giving love. I ask that for those who are feeling a sense of scarcity, a sense of not enough, or like running on fumes, that you would take those few meager resources and with the gratitude that we have those, that you would help those to to stretch and that they would be enough. I ask that you would give us a sense of peace, that God, you care for us and will continue to care for us, just like you do the birds of the air and those bank swallows who are gobbling up the insects there down on the Huron River. We say thank you and we ask that you would help us to just have this sense of gratitude as we go through our week. We thank you for your strength. We thank you for your presence. In the name of Jesus, amen.